0: I was trying to figure out exactly how to come at this, and I I had two different ways, but I decided to do, well, I don't have to tell you the story of it, but I'm gonna come at it through Descartes' Tree of Knowledge. Um, He says that uh, the Tree of Knowledge has its roots in metaphysics. that will deal with um, God, world, and soul. And he says in the meditations that you should do those so you can get past them. So you can pass the Jesuit sensors, for one thing. Uh, and then go on to what's really important. Because the, the, the trunk is physics. And the branches are mechanics medicine, and morals. He never got to write the morals thing because he died, but anyhow. Um, Now the main point of it all, however, are the fruits. And the aim of it is to become lords and masters of nature. And that sets in motion the, the modern project, right? It's to conquer nature for human well-being. Now, in Heidegger, this leads to the contemporary situation where the fundamental way of coming at things is established through what he calls the Gestell, mm, the term for it, skeleton or framework in some sense, right? So we approach things through the scientific framework, right? and everything has to fit within that context. That's that's the reliable knowing, but it's essentially also technological and transformative. Right? So as we learn to manipulate nature through refined instrumentation, we learn to develop more refined instrumentation for conquering nature. So the conquest of nature is, is what it was what's after. And things are viewed as bestand. Uh, Gegenstand, something's over against you. Bestand is translated typically, standing reserve. The whole world is standing reserve for our projects, including people. And so, so this is the modern framework within which we automatically approach nature approach reality, approach ourselves the question Heidegger asks is what is the soil within which the tree is planted and the soil is our being in the world and that's the fundamental character of what he calls Dasein. He sometimes hyphenates it. Dasein means simply being here or being there. But here, the da is the there, and sein is being. The human being is the place where being as a whole opens up for us. Being, and we exist as the question about being, the question about the nature of the whole, okay. Okay. Um, what Okay, what it means to be in the world it's kind of anti-Cartesian. On the one hand, it's to be ecstatic in the sense in which we stand out there in the world around us. He says, from the Cartesian project, it's a problem how you get from inside the cogito to outside the cogito. And he says, that's not a problem. We're always outside the cogito. <laughs> to begin with, visually and, and oddly, in the environment, when you see something, that's not simply in your head. <laughs> What you're seeing is things out there. So we're already out there with things, but out there, especially mediated by a tradition, and most specifically by language. The psychologist says, we're all trapped within our subjectivity, and I'll say, yeah, I know perfectly well what you mean. Precisely because I have the language to be able to, he has the language to be able to articulate something that's not merely private and subjective, because we're always already in a world of meaning, mediated through language. And we're already outside of ourselves with the world around us, and outside the now in terms of anticipation and recall, in terms of our relationship to time. Okay, that's the first approach. The second, go back to our old friend Plato. As Whitehead said, the history of Western thought is a series of footnotes on Plato. (laughs) And that's verifiable, I think. Um, Come back to the line of knowledge. top of which is the good. Now, one of the functions of the good is to provide the light between intellect and the intelligible. If you remember, just as we can have the power of seeing and visible things, but no seeing unless there's a medium, namely light, so also we can have an intellect and the intelligibility of things, but no understanding unless there is an intellectual light. The term he uses for that is aletheia. And aletheia means truth. Uh, but it, well, let me put it this way. Truth, yeah. let me do that. Well, I hate to. Let's do it over here. Aletheia founds uh, the distinction between orthotes and the pseudos. That is the true and the false, right? the verifiable and the, the incorrect, the, the orthodox and, and the non-orthodox in some sense, right? But what grounds it is this aletheia, which he translates in terms of its privative prefix as unconcealment. And he reads that historically. Historically, the fundamental framework within which we, we, we come at things changes over time. That's the historicity of our way of understanding being. But this plays in relationship to, then, um, the most important notion in his thought, I think, the lay namely the hidden. He likes um, to quote um, Heraclitus, uh, fusis cryptosidae philae, that is the default mode for Nature is hiddenness, right? Nature loves to hide in some sense. That's its, that's its nature, fundamentally. And this turns out then to be what he calls then the mystery of being. No matter what the ultimate framework within which we live is, it's always the case that it manifests only relatively to the whole. It manifests, even though it manifests a lot, like scientific discovery, right? But, but it hides something else, right? In science, what's hidden is basically the manifestation that requires a subject committed to the truth. Okay? That's not what science attends to. In fact, it tends to work in such a way that you reduce that subject to a matter of neural functions. Right? Okay. Um, so what do we have here? We have uh, Dasein as being in the world. We have the Lathe. we got Aletheia and those two modalities of uh, truth and falsity. Uh, Come back here to to the uh, uh, line of knowledge again. Um, So we have images, things, mathematical objects, and forms. And the expression for form is ADOS. We'll come back to that. You have then a um, distinction between... Um, th- things and principles. This is called by Plato "ousia," which is usually translated as um, "being," right? and the uh, the translation Heidegger gives. And I'm translating this in English, is "beingness." So we have things and their beingness, things and their intelligibility, and this constitutes. Beings that have to be thought of. Where are we here? When did I do this? That have to be thought of in term in terms of. In terms of uh, the mystery of being, the lethe. So the being is revealed and concealed in every epoch in different ways, Okay, Um, And Dasein is the place where that openness of being happens. Dasein is the place where we have the fundamental question, what's it all about? So that the the Leithei not only opens up the question about the whole, it also opens up the totality of each thing that is, only aspects of which we ever grasp. So there's always a retreat into mystery, in any single thing that we encounter, against the background of the openness of the whole, which we grasp only in terms of certain modes of unconcealment. So the difference then between being and beings is what he calls the ontological difference. And in terms of getting back to the ground of metaphysics, I just lost my train of thought. The ravages of old age. Um, So I'm gonna go with that. The difference between being and being. Okay, yeah, okay, good. Because he says what metaphysics studies, you say in tradition, metaphysics studies being qua being, and then everything else studies aspects of being, right? And he's saying what metaphysics studies is beings qua beings, and not qua being, because being is more than beings. So there is this lethe, this hidden dimension, that is then the mystery of being, right? um, which is our um, milieu. Right? We belong to that milieu of mystery. Right? Everything that appears, appears against the background of mystery, right? and opens up the whole in something. We've seen that in Maritain, right? the idea that when you experience one thing, the ocean of being somehow surrounds it. Okay. Uh, let me... Let me take a third approach, and that's in terms of Husserl and phenomenology. Husserl as as is correct, viewed the history of philosophy as a kind of battleground. And most specifically at the time he was writing between materialist reductionism and idealism. And he proposed, we put in brackets, the question of what the ultimate is. And pay attention to the way in which things present themselves. And that's called phenomenology. The study of the way in which appearing to human beings happens, not only sensorially, but also in terms of memory, in terms of imagination, in terms of intellectual insight into logic, metaphysics, et cetera. There's all different modalities of how things appear to us. And phenomenology uh, aims at that, and it aims at the, um, excuse me. That's why I stuck this term in here. It it aims at the eidetic. Phenomenology is a way of trying to get a hold of the various structures of the different kinds of objects and the different states of mind corresponding to them. So it's after the Eidos. So you get then in Husserl, the phenomenological reduction, which is based on what he calls bracketing. No matter what things are, ultimately, they do appear to us. And there's various modes of appearance. And it's the task of phenomenology to describe those modes, that relationship between subject and object. Uh, The second thing, then, is this subject-object relation. the, The relation of which is a relationship of intentionality. You don't just have ideas that are about something. You're not just aware you're aware of something. And so, uh, all awareness is awareness of something. And then Sart adds this, on the basis of being awareness of yourself, but not directly. I think, does Hildebrand use the term lateral, lateral awareness of yourself, for that particular phenomenon? Yeah. So, so you know that it's you that's listening to, or, or daydreaming within the time I'm talking now, right? Uh, but you're not paying attention to the fact that you're attentive or that you are daydreaming, right? You're paying attention to whatever your daydream is or whatever you're trying to get a hold of here, right? So all consciousness is conscious of something on the basis of being consciousness of oneself. So that the self-presence is the basis for the manifestation of what's other. Okay, um, but let, let me do this. The framework he works with to begin with is vision and the visible, right? And so what we have to ask ourselves is, what are the eidetic features of vision and the visible? What what is the framework within which vision happens? Number one, you have to have phenomenally empty space. Two, it has to be filled with light. Three, color appears in that context, has to always inhere an extension, and it appears in terms of uh, progressive shrinking of things, perspectival distortion as things present themselves progressively away from yourself, out towards the horizon. So horizon, Perspectival distortion, color, phenomenally empty space, and light. These are always found wherever you find seeing, okay? So they're always permanently verifiable. It isn't just a matter of relativity. You're simply looking at the way in which things present themselves. So what is doing then is filling in the space of Plato's forms. Okay, um, another concept the life world. All of what we do in terms of making explicit the structures involved in experience typically arises out of our inhabiting a life world, which we're not inventorying, but in which we're living. And one of the features of the life world is what he calls sedimentation. That is, we work with ready-made concepts. Um, science works with ready-made concepts. And the question he's raising is, what's the origin of those concepts in relationship to the whole field of experience, in relationship to the life world that we inhabit? So there's always this tracing back of things to the life world. Okay, now that's the direction that Heidegger will take when he says that Dasein is basically being in a world. But being in a world is uh, not simply a matter of conscious subject and manifest object. Being in a world is a matter of having that whole field of awareness tuned by what underlies it in some sense. And so each one of us has, like I like to speak with this way, each one of us has a magnetic field of attractions and repulsions and neutralities right, that's different. Right? And it's the default mode for our typical modes of acting and our typical choices. Right? So we live out of the heart. That's kind of a von theme, basically. Right? Um, so for Heidegger, then, then, prior to um conscious activity. There is the underpinning of conscious activity by this whole inhabitants of a world substructure. Okay. okay. All right. Doesn't erase very well. It's because I was using the wrong end of it. <laughs> okay. Now, the central work of Heidegger is Being in Time, 1927. Right. So I want to look at that a bit. Uh, so, Dasein is basically the locus of the question about being as a whole. Right. Dasein is being in a world. But Dasein is also um, structured around the relationship to time. And so we have obviously these three dimensions, past, present, and future. And he talks about the human being as a throne project it leads to the present mode of what he calls fallenness. Throne project, that is, um, we find ourselves, when you think about it, just having been thrown into a world, not asking to have been born, not asking to have the, being raised Catholic, not asking to have the kind of cultural context within which we live. We we have that to work with in some sense. He uses the term thrown, I'd rather say (laughs) graced. We provide our opportunities by how we're in, in, inhabiting, brought into a world, yeah. thrown project in the sense that, for human beings, the fundamental dimension is futurity. We see the meaning of what we're doing now in terms of the kind of project we have for our life. If you're interested in being, a, i told this to my students, if you're, your interest is basically being a plutocrat, taking metaphysics might not be part of what you're interested in. Right? Uh, if you have a conversion experience, you might find metaphysics is well worthwhile exploring. Right? So the, 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 the project turns out differently. Now, there are two modes of inhabiting a world, a temporal world, and one is usually called authentic, but that's, I think, not right, because the opposite is inauthentic, and that sounds like phony, and that's not what he means. I'd rather translate this as a, a unappropriated existence versus uh, appropriated. And this is the world of what he calls Dasman, The anonymous one, the they. They say this, one must do this, one must do that. Right? And we live in that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's essential we, that, that we can't be without being unappropriated. Right? Living off of a heritage that we don't appropriate. Uh, in fact, that's supposed to be the point of, of confirmation, isn't it? To come back on a religion that you didn't ex- accept on your own, to now commit yourself to it. Okay, now the three characteristics of the unappropriated relationship is, with regard to the past, ambiguity. Uh, What's grounded, what's not grounded. Uh, We simply say that which we've we've heard, or they say in some sense, or you appeal to an authority, um, and it's not clear exactly what's revealed and what's not revealed what has groundedness and what doesn't have groundedness, we simply accept what they say. The they might typically be the church in which we belong. Right? Okay. The uh, relationship to the future is one of curiosity. Interested in this project, that project, but I'll find out going this way, that way, and so forth. And then the mode of being in the present is one which she calls uh, gereda, which is sometimes translated as chatter or small talk. Right? But but as we meet each other here, we're always engaged in some kind of chatter, about the weather, about this, that, and the other. That's not to be taken as negative. It's simply part of how you live in the world, but you're living it as kind of anonymous one. You do what they do, do what one does in this kind of context. Then there is the appropriated existence, and this is the, the big thing here. Human being, being in the world, is also being toward death. <clears throat> from which uh, we're inclined to flee into the an- anonymity of the they, to run with the crowd in order not to think about the fact that we, have, we are mortal beings in some sense. Right? The task in some sense is to reflect upon our own mortality, right? to run ahead from where we are now right? to our ultimate term and look from there back over our life. Say, in the light of having to die, how would I have wanted to live? Right? And so that leads to then ultimately a decision to a resoluteness in uh, having our own life project that we commit ourselves to. And that leads then to, with regard to the past, retrieval. Of course, that's what we're doing, right? Vatican II was about um, resourcement, Retrieving the tradition in some sense, bringing it forward in terms of how we commit ourselves to our own individual future now. And then the upshot of that is genuine communication. (laughs) On the basis of unappropriate existence, we always live in in the they, live in the one. What one does, what they say, and so we're always living that way, and it's not wrong, it's essential. (laughs) On the other hand, living that way is living in a kind of anonymity. And the task, in one sense, is to find our own particular call. I think he gets this out of the, he was a Jesuit seminarian for a while, I think he gets this out of the nation exercises. You start them by meditating on death and the last things. And at some point, you end up making a decision for how you want to live your life. So this is a kind of secularized version of that, Uh, linked to both being towards death and to uh, the fact that we're oriented towards being as a whole, there is necessarily, at the basis of our life, an underlying unsettledness, which he calls angst or anxiety. It's, he contrasts angst with fear. Fear is about something. It has an object. Angst is this kind of nameless restlessness underlying character. And Augustine reads that as the desire of the human being Underlying everything else for the face of God, okay? the fullness of being. Right? So we're restless underneath all our security and projects until we face the divine itself. Okay? So Augustine has this now religious reading of the same kind of phenomenological context that, that um, Heidegger is working, work, working with. Okay. Let me add one more thing to the being in time, namely the notion of historicity. Being in time is not only living authentically or inauthentically or appropriately and unappropriately, but it's also living out of a structuring of the world that is historically constituted. So there are changing fundamental frameworks within which we operate, which constitute the, big, the, the, the great the large ground of history, right? So we exist as historical animals, exist in such a way that we live off the inheritance of the past, but nonetheless live into the future and, and c- encounter other cultures that live differently because of the milieu in which, which they operate. All right. Now, I said that von Hildurand uh, said that uh, we must make Heidegger's project our own. Right? And Heidegger's project is to get underneath... Tree of knowledge again, to get underneath the way in which we're doing things in order to get a hold of the peculiar modality of being that's operating underneath all that. Okay. And that, that's linked to then two modes of thinking. One is... what's translated as Representative, calculative thinking, and meditative thinking. Now, we all engage in this when we figure out a checkbook or something like this, right? But, but then there are special types that are called to operate in that field, and that would be calculative mathematicians, philosophers, scientists, systematic theologians, right? These are all particularly gifted people who can work well in the level of representing things and ordering them in some sense in terms of argument and systematicity. Meditative thinking, however, is another sort of thing and it belongs to human beings as such. Human beings as such are most fundamentally meditative animals, if you want to come at it that way. Um, If you contrast these, this operates in terms of method. This operates in terms of what Taoists call the way. Right? Very much different than a method that you use in some sense. On the other hand, the method that underlies representative calculative procedure is uh, logic. That's how things are ordered and organized. Right? But the method quote unquote, of uh, meditative thinking is what he calls segetic. Right? comes from the Greek C.J., which means silence. Um, Kierkegaard said, our cities are, our our people are sick. Our cities are machines for generating omnipresent noise. If I were a doctor asked for a cure, I would say create silence. So the, quote, method of meditative thinking is a method of learning to dwell in silence, in silent openness. Using methodical procedure, representative calculative thinking makes progress. Ongoing developmental character. Science is ongoing, expansive, methodologically self-corrective. It keeps going on and getting more and more hold of things. Whereas this is oriented towards what what I like to call presencing. That is, um, allowing the depth of things to be manifest in the present, not aimed at progress, but aimed at this kind of deepening of our relationship to things. So this is aimed at, it's the Cartesian project again, in a wider sense, mastery. Even systematic theology is a way of mastering the whole domain of theological inquiry. Whereas the aim of this is what he calls letting be. This contrast is presented in a little, very accessible work called uh, Memorial Address in English, but it's Gelassenheit in German. Right? That's a term Meister Eckhart uses for kind of holy abandonment, right? a way of opening yourself up to things, letting them take hold of you. That's been one of the dominant themes throughout this whole uh, colloquium. <laughs> and this belongs to then what we come to call the intellect, And this belongs to what we've come to call the heart. So meditative thinking is aimed at attaining to an inner silence that allows things to take hold of us and to transform our hearts. That's the project theology has to make its own. Theology should be, uh, von Hildebrand, uh, prayerful theology, rooted in the life of prayer. You you can do, like you can, As Dr. Vanderson pointed out, you can have a great composer who's a a lousy person. Uh, But the same could be true of a theologian. You could master the whole realm and not be a very good person. So um, what meditative thinking is about is transformation through letting be, through allowing things to take hold of us, being ready for the proper response to whatever value uh, uh, addresses us in some way. Okay, Uh, one more thing. And and that's uh, the, the work called The Origin of the Work of Art. I've given kind of a summary of that. See, he thinks that what he calls the saving grace in the epoch we now inhabit is through the arts, and is, is, is uh, assessment of the present context is that the gestel. It's viewing everything as fitting into our projects. We use them, including people, in order to get where we want to go and, and, and make progress in some sense. Right. Okay. This is Heidegger. Heidegger, yeah, yeah in the the epoch in which we live we live in an epoch characterized by what he calls the flight of the gods the darkening of the earth the reduction of people to a mass and the, the destruction of everything free and creative that's our that's our epoch in some sense and the way back is through the arts and the arts operate in terms of a tension between world and earth. World is not cosmos. World is the life world. The world for a people. And earth is not simply a cosmic location or soil for the sake of growing. But earth is the... uh, but he calls the an unpurposed underlying reliable dimension uh, that remains dark. Earth, but earth is darkness rising up in sensuousness. Right? And world is openness rising out of the Lethe in some way. Right? Um, and art takes place in the tension between these two poles. The dimension of earth is in the character of the, the use of the senses, right? the earthiness of sound in some sense, right? Uh, so that rem- that's the fundamental medium in, in such a way, however, that the colors, for example, do not remain simply subsidiary as they are in normal attention to things. He says in, in a painting, color shines as it were for the first time, that somehow the color enters not as a subsidiary, but in some sense as a focal element. And in the great work of art, what can happen is that there's so, he calls it this way. There's so much world space created that in it, the ordinary becomes extraordinary. That everything is bathed in the light of the kind of opening of a world for human dwelling that can happen in terms of the great work of art. Uh, when you move into his later work, he elaborates this a little more differently, following Hilderlin, and it is he calls it, the play of the fourfold, earth and sky mortals, and immortals. And the um, word is what gathers the ding, the thing. Ding is apparently originally a gathering. I sometimes wonder whether it comes from ding-dong that gathers people together. Um, But but word is finding the, the, the right meaning, that gathers this fourfold together. So there is then uh, the belonging to the earth as uh, color rises up in a work of art. There is the relationship to the mortals. This is like the logical square of opposition. There's play between all the the members. We're called human because we're made out of humus. (laughs) We belong to the earth. So our mortality is tied to our, our belonging to the earth. Uh, We're open to the whole and the immortals are the uh, announcements of the most high. I take that to mean both uh, angels and muses, the sources of inspiration that give the direction to human life. And then the sky interplays with the immortals in the sense that the sky is an unreachable that measures us in terms of the days and seasons and so forth. So there's an unreachable that measures us physically But there's also a deeper uh, deeper dimension, dimension of the announcements of the most high that determine what's high and low in human life. Uh, And that's set upon the earth. It's the poet that finds the word that gathers the whole in that sense. He quotes, uh, is it, a georga? Where word word breaks off, no thing can be. Heidegger speaks of uh, things losing their being. That doesn't mean they go out of existence. It means that that inner depth and mystery about them right, um, is, is non-sensitized non-sensit- sensitized to by, by human beings in some sense. right? So things lose their being mean they don't have that reverberation. They don't open up the hole. They don't grab a hold of us in some sense. right? Um, And they can find their being through the work of art, and especially through the poetic work, where the poet finds the word that somehow opens up the whole as a world for dwelling. And I think that's the direction that uh, von Hildebrand wants us to move in considering meditative thinking and the arts as the ground of theology.